0: Good morning. Good Good to see you guys. Good morning to everyone online. I hope you guys are doing well. Good morning to the Farmington Hills family. And once again, happy one-year anniversary to you. Hope you guys are doing well over there at Farmington Hills. Yeah. Y'all are family. Two churches, one location. Love you guys over there. We're going to continue in our series to the book of Nehemiah today. So before we go any further, let's, let's pray to our God this morning. Father God, we come to you in your son Jesus' name. God, thank you for this opportunity to gather and sing songs like we did this morning. Oh, what a savior. God, we we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. and We give you our attention, God. God, I pray that you would move me out of the way. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and be made much of in the lives of your people. God, you know what they need. You know what they're going through. God, speak to their hearts. Impart your word into our lives. God, minister to us by your Holy Spirit. We're desperate for you. It's in your Son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. April 3rd, 1963, or 68, sorry, I got that wrong. April 3rd, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his final speech in my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee. My mom always tells me about this story. She lived in downtown Memphis, so she wasn't too far away from where Dr. King was speaking that night on April 3rd, and she wanted to go see him. And she always would tell me the story of wanting to go see him, and and, uh, my grandmother wouldn't let her go. Because it was a stormy night, the weather was bad, and it was raining, and my mom said, I want to go see him, I want to go see him, but uh, my grandmother didn't let her go that night. But many other people did, and people lined up in the rain to see Dr. King. Dr. King was sick that night. He was very under the weather. He was fatigued from leading and from being sick in general. He just was tired. and He just wanted to stay in that night and let someone else speak that night. Well, his friends called back to the hotel. They said, Martin, Martin, you have to get down here. You have to get down here. These people are waiting on you, and they want to hear from you. I know you're not feeling well, but you have to speak tonight. And so sure enough, Dr. King gets there, and this drenched crowd is looking to him for some hope. They're looking to him for some source of hope. And he's tired And he's fatigued, but he speaks extemporaneously off the cuff, no notes, for 43 minutes straight. And before collapsing to his seat, he says these words. He says, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've seen the mountaintop I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind like anybody I would like to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land and I may not get there with you but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land so I'm happy tonight I'm not worried about anything I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I've always wondered where did he get the nerve? Where do people like him get the nerve and the courage? Where do you get the nerve and the courage? Dr. King gave that speech and stumbled back into his seat from fatigue. And the next day, he would lose his life to an assassin on April 4th, 1968. Where did did he get the nerve? Where did he get the audacity? Where did he get the courage? And where do people like him get the courage and the nerve? Look no further than his speech to find the answer to that question, I believe. Dr. King said, I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord the glory of the coming of the Lord. I, I, I've seen it. See, a mountaintop is a place of perspective. It's a place of vision. When you're standing on the mountaintop, you can see things that you normally wouldn't see. Dr. King was a man of vision. He had a vision. He could see it. He, he could see what the future was going to look like. And when good visionaries paint a picture, we can see it, smell it, smell it taste it and feel it and dr king had a vision and that's what kept him going vision is a powerful thing i want to look at a few vision statements from 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 our world this is apple apple says to make the best products on earth and to leave the world better than we found it i believe apple makes the best products on earth i'm sorry to all the android and folks out there don't tune me out Pepsi, to provide consumers around the world with delicious, affordable, convenient, and complimentary foods and beverages from wholesome breakfasts to healthy and daytime snacks and beverages to evening treats. I'm with all of this besides the healthy. What are they talking about? I don't, I don't, I don't know if they've really lived into that vision yet. And this is, this is another vision statement from a sister in Christ. She says, I feel called to speak out On behalf of life, whether unborn, marginalized, unsaved life, I want to make it known that each life is created in his image and has eternal value because of him and for his glory. Someone said of the apostle Paul would have had a vision statement. This is what it would have looked like. My vision is to take the gospel to the Gentiles in order to present each person perfect in Christ by making disciples and planting churches. I believe Paul lived into that. Someone said, if Jesus would have had a vision statement, it would have looked like this. My vision is to obey the Father's will by offering my life as a sacrifice to save the lost. Vision is is a powerful thing. It's a a picture of a preferred future. And when we look at that picture, it it draws us into what could be. Vision is that picture of what could be or should be. Now, this is just a picture of, of me and some friends uh, at a golf tournament, so that's, that's probably somebody's preferred future today. You'd probably be rather playing golf than sitting here, but bear with me. Uh, but vision is a picture of a preferred future. This is what could be or should be, and, we have, and when we have that picture, we, we lean into it, and, and we follow in on that vision. Here's what I want to say though. Vision is not something reserved for corporate executives and religious leaders and CEOs because God is the giver of vision. And when you spend time with God, he will give you vision and direction and clarity for your life. He gives it generously. He wants us to seek him for our lives. And so there is so much vision potential in this room, so much vision potential online and at Farmington Hills, because God is the giver of vision, and we have access to him, and we can seek him for whatever we need, and we can seek him for the direction of our lives. I've, I've talked with some of you about some of your, your vision for, for your life. Some of you have said, I have a vision to make my retirement years about Jesus my retirement years aren't going to be all about me and about leisure. My, my retirement years, I'm going to dedicate those years to, to, to ministry and serving others in some kind of way and loving others. And I've talked with some of you who, who've said that. I've talked with some of our high school students who said they have a vision for, for seeing their classmates come to Christ. So they want to start a Bible study at their school. I've talked with some of you who, who've said that. Uh, some of you said, I, I have a vision for for breaking generational curses in my family. And maybe my, my parents didn't, didn't uh, do it a certain way, but I have a vision for something different for, for my family. And that vision, when we see it, vision gives us the nerve to start and the heart to finish. When we, when we have a picture of it, of that preferred future, and after we've spent time with God and sought his face and aligned our heart with his Vision gives us the nerve to start and the heart to finish. But here's something else about vision. When you have a vision from God, the reality is you're going to deal with some level of opposition. It's just going to come because we live in a fallen world and the enemy doesn't want to see you fulfill that vision. And everybody's not going to be excited about you loving Jesus and, and, and Satan is not excited about the fact that Jesus loves you. But we're called to persevere. And there will be some opposition. And sometimes opposition leads to a failure of nerve and a failure of heart. I don't know if you heard that song. Mama said there'll be days like this, right? On the tough days, resistance can lead to a failure of nerve or a failure of heart. Failure of nerve is just... Well, you get to the point where you just can't put your foot out in faith again. And some of you have experienced some resistance that was strategically designed from the enemy to make sure that you don't step that foot out in faith again. And God may be calling some of you to get your nerve back. To get your nerve back, to step out in faith and to try again. Because that opposition, that resistance can lead to a failure Oh, I'm never saying that again, never doing that again, never trying that again. Or sometimes it can lead to a failure of heart where you just get worn down. And God may be calling some of you today to re-engage your heart again. Don't, don't go at it half-hearted. Don't go at it halfway. Put your whole heart in it again. And sometimes you have to look at that vision to remind yourself, why am I doing this again? Why, why did we start again? That's right, we had a vision We had a vision for that thing. Vision gives us the nerve to start and the heart to finish. I want to look at Nehemiah's story. He's a man of vision. This is a story of vision, but this is a story also of perseverance. This is Nehemiah. He says, the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. He's seeking God once again for that vision. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Nehemiah had a clear vision. He was going to go back to his hometown of Jerusalem and he was going to rebuild his city that had been decimated and destroyed. And he was going to rebuild the wall God had given him a clear vision, and now he has to lean into it. But Nehemiah is going to go through the leadership journey that many have gone through before him, and many will go through after him. And maybe you're going through this leadership journey as well. That leadership journey begins with awareness. You're made aware of something. God brings something to your attention, and you see it. And in that moment, you have the decision to either ignore it or to slow down and pay attention to what's happening. And the next step in that journey is the burden. You have the awareness of the problem, but God grips your heart. You just can't look at it. You just can't see that and walk past it, but but you have to do something about it, and so you're burdened. You just can't sleep at night without thinking about it. And then next, God gives you vision. You have the awareness of the problem. You've been burdened in your heart by the problem, but God gives you some vision. He, He shows you what it looks like for you to be a part of his solution and his redemption of that broken problem in the world. So the leadership journey begins with awareness, burden on the heart, vision, but then now you break it down into strategy. And we see this with Nehemiah, and his story. He, he heard about the city walls that had been burned with fire, but then he, he, he got the vision, he got the burden, but then he breaks all of that down into, into a clear strategy and plans. And the people begin to actually work on it, and they can see it now because they've been given clear strategy and plans for how to accomplish this task. And once you get the strategy, then you get the courage because you, you, you're aware, you have the burden, you have the vision, you have the strategy, and now you have the courage to actually step into it. And we, we, we talked about that last week when we said, let us start rebuilding because you have the strategy, now you got the courage to step into it. But here's what we're going to talk about today. Even after you've had all of that, you still have to have that grit to persevere and keep going because opposition is going to come. And Nehemiah and his people are going to need some grit. They're going to need some Detroit Lions, Dan Campbell-level grit because they're going to face some opposition. For the rest of our time, I just want to talk about remaining faithful through resistance because we're going to deal with some resistance the enemy is going to shoot arrows. He's going to come at you. He's going to send things your way. But you're going to have to decide whether or not you're going to give your attention to the vision, to the picture of that preferred future, or you are going to focus on the resistance? Because it's there. It's very real. can't necessarily ignore it. But what are you going to elevate? What's going to be a priority for you? What are you going to prioritize? Are you going to prioritize the resistance? or you're going to prioritize and focus on the vision. We're going to see how Nehemiah does this and how he presses in through the resistance. So Nehemiah and his people are going to experience ridicule. That's the first area of resistance that they're going to and I just had a bug fly in my face. That was my resistance. (laughs) 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 They're they're they're, going to experience a certain level. (laughs) What little devil bug? They're going to experience a certain level of resistance. They're going to experience ridicule. I want to look at the definition of ridicule. Ridicule unkind words or actions that make someone or something look stupid to mock, make fun of, or roast. Now, this is from Cambridge Dictionary. They're very scholarly. So, yeah, uh, to make someone look stupid. That's what the scholar says. That's what, that's what ridicule means. But in all seriousness, ridicule is meant to communicate a message that you're not important, that you're insignificant, that what you're trying to do is silly, and the enemy loves to shoot that arrow of ridicule towards the vision that God gives his people. He wants us to feel silly. He wants us to feel like what we're doing isn't important, not serious, not to be taken seriously. And so that's what Nehemiah and the people are going to experience. Verse 1 says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly and enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. Sanballat was a ruler in the area. He was angry at the fact that Nehemiah and the Jews were rebuilding this wall because he saw the reconstruction of this wall as a threat. If the Jews would be restored to strength again, and if they would restore their power again and be stable again, well, maybe they would be some kind of threat towards him. So Sanballat was insecure. He was an insecure ruler who was insecure about this construction project. So he begins to try to spread that insecurity. And here's what we know about insecurity. Insecurity is contagious. Insecurity is contagious. When a person is insecure, a lot of times they want other people to be insecure as well. Insecurity is contagious, but so is faith. And we're going to see this here. Samballot was insecure, so he begins to poke at Nehemiah and the Jews. He begins to poke at their work. And to poke at their own insecurities. Let's look at it. And he does this by asking them a bunch of questions. He says, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? He's just questioning them. Will they finish it up in a day? Ha 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 ha. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps? Out of rubbish? And the burned ones at that, ha, 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 will they, will they do it? And he's just poking, na, 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 nah. Poking at them, poking at them while they're trying to do this work, while they're trying to focus on the vision that God gives them. Sandballot and Tobiah, these, these two insecure people are trying to spread insecurity back on Nehemiah and the builders. And then his friend, Sanballat, is poking at him, but then his friend, Tobiah, comes along and he joins in and he starts to poke at him too. He says this, he says, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yeah. What they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break it down. He will break down their store while, ha 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 ha, na 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 na, na. poking at them while they're, while they're working. And so, this is, a, this is a, an inflection point in the story. This is a significant point for Nehemiah as a leader. Is he going to pay attention to the ridicule and the critics and the naysayers, or, he, or is he going to focus on the vision that God has given him? He could have easily dropped the work and went blow for blow and insult for insult and criticism for criticism with the people. But instead, he decides to focus on God. See, insecurity is contagious, but so is faith. Let's see how Nehemiah responds. He says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. In other words, Nehemiah says, God, this problem is yours. This negativity, I'm giving it to you. This ridicule, I'm surrendering it to you. I'm not going to go blow for blow. I'm not going to go word for word. I'm not going to respond to the insults. I'm going to stay focused on the vision that you Have given me. And the people followed Nehemiah in that because insecurity is contagious, but so is faith. And the people worked. It says, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to have its height, for the people had a mind to work. So the enemy sent the arrow of ridicule. But next, they're going to experience resistance in the form of intimidation. Because if the ridicule and the the criticism doesn't work, sometimes the mode of opposition is intimidation. Let's let's look here. Vision gives us the nerve to start and the heart to finish through all of this. Chapter 4, verse 8. It says, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. There was a plot for an invasion. So this is beyond just words now. Now the opposition is saying, if you don't stop, we're going to come and we're going to take your life. If you don't stop, we're going to physically put our hands on you. And when the various people in, in, uh, in Jerusalem heard this, they were frightened. They were, they were afraid. They were legitimately scared because this was a legitimate threat. Their friends and family outside of Jerusalem said, have you heard what they are doing? They are planning and plotting an attack against you. Get out of there. That wall isn't that important anyway. Stop the work. I know that you feel like God told you to do that, but you need to stop. You need to get, you need to get out of there. One of my favorite historical figures is Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was the prime minister of the United Kingdom during World War II. And there was a point in the middle of World War II where Nazi Germany was closing in on the United Kingdom. And many of Churchill's advisors told him, we can't beat Nazi Germany. We need to make a peace treaty. We need to just surrender to them. We need to negotiate with Hitler. We don't need to go into a head-on conflict, Churchill. You need to back down. And I love what Churchill said in response to that. He said something so strong. He says, you can't reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. You can't reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. In other words, we're not going to negotiate with the enemy. We're not going to make a peace treaty with the enemy. As a matter of fact, if we do that, we're good as dead anyway. Friends, sometimes you will experience a level of intimidation regarding your faith, you might lose something. You might lose some status. Some relationships might be threatened. You might lose some things and people that are close to you in some parts of the world. You might lose your life. I read somewhere that on average, 16 Christians per day lose their life for the faith. Just for being a follower of Jesus Christ, they lose their life. One in eight Christians in the world experience some serious level of persecution every day for their faith. And so there's a reality that it may come to a point one day where you have to decide, am I willing to lose something for following Jesus? Not everybody's going to be happy or not everybody's going to love the fact that you love Jesus. And Satan definitely doesn't love the fact that Jesus loves you. So sometimes there will be opposition. Let's see what we can learn from Nehemiah. He says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives in your homes. He reminds them of why they're fighting. And... He tells them to remember the Lord. The opposition is great, but our God is greater. The rejection may be great, but the acceptance and the love of God is greater. He says, remember who God is. See, vision gives us the nerve to start and the heart to finish. And so the people endured ridicule. They endured intimidation. But the next attack is going to come in the form of distraction. The enemy is going to try to distract them and get their attention on something else. Let's look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, now, when Samballad and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gate, Samballad and Geshem sent to me, saying, come and let us meet together. At Hakepharim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. Many scholars say that this was an ambush described as a truce. They wanted to get Nehemiah away from the work. They wanted to distract him and get him away from the vision. This town, Hekepharim, was 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And that was 30 miles northwest of the vision that God had given Nehemiah and the people. And let's see how he responds when he's hit with this distraction. I love this. Nehemiah has the spiritual gift of minding his own business. Let's see how he does this. He says, and I sent to the messengers saying, I'm doing great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. No, 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 no. He was focused on the vision that God had given him, he wouldn't allow himself to be distracted. God's words meant a lot more than man's words. Vision gives us the nerve to start and the heart to finish. Some of you may be saying, well, Terrence, I don't think I'm a visionary. I don't think I have vision like that. Great. Perfect. Because Jesus already has the vision for us. He says it like this. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the rest will be added unto you. Jesus is the chief master visionary, and he's building out his vision. His vision is the kingdom of God, and he's redeeming a lost, broken world to himself. He's redeeming souls, and he's restoring families, and he's restoring communities, and and he's bringing it all together. And he says, come and be a part of my vision. Jesus is the chief visionary, and he's calling you to be a part of it. Maybe a part of that vision uh, is him doing a restoration work in your life and, and your soul. Maybe a part of that vision is him sending you out to be a part of something that he's doing in the world, to be a part of his kingdom building. He's the chief and the master visionary. And he endured the shame of the cross For this vision. Just like Nehemiah and the people were intimidated and ridiculed, Jesus was intimidated and ridiculed on the cross. And as his blood was shed on that cross, he could have gotten off of that cross. He could have stopped that and and, and gotten away from that situation and pulled himself out of the cross and not had to endure that shame, but he had a vision. So he endured the shame on the cross. He had a vision and he wants each of us to be a part of that vision. And you're gonna face some resistance, you're gonna face some opposition. The enemy's gonna shoot some arrows your way as well. But Jesus tells us just to fix our eyes on him. I love the way Hebrews says it, it says it like this, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning is shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, this is an important line, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God didn't want you to lose heart for that vision that he's giving you. That vision for your life, that vision for your family, that vision for your community, God didn't want you to lose heart. He says, set your eyes on him. And that vision gives us the nerve to start and the heart to finish. When you came in this morning, you should have received a piece of brick, and we're going to continue to fill these out. Now is the time to interact with that brick. I want to encourage you to get that. And I want you to just write down what is an area of opposition that you can surrender to the Lord. Maybe it's something physical. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's bitterness in your own heart that's a distraction to you. Whatever it is, by faith, I just want to encourage you to write that down. And then we're going to turn those in to the ushers on the way out. And we started rebuilding these walls uh, last week, and you guys sent in various prayer requests here, and this week we're going to add to it. And as we build this wall it's a symbol of what our prayers can accomplish together, that we're part of something bigger than ourselves, and all of these prayers are going to add up to something we trust and believe that. And by faith today, we want you to add to that wall by saying, God, this is something That's an opposition in my life. And just like Nehemiah, who was facing resistance and facing opposition, we want to say, God, I give this to you. Let's go before our king and pray this morning. Father God, we come to you surrendering things to you that are too big for us, problems too great for us, things that we can't fix in our own strength. God, we give that to you. God, help us to focus on you and not the opposition, not the ridicule of this world, not the intimidation of the enemy, not the voices in our heads. God, help us to focus on you. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.